If you're just joining us, <clears throat> we're in the middle of a series. Well, I'm going to scare you if I say in the middle. We're very much nearing the end of a series in the book of Ephesians. And each week as we've turned to this letter, we've been asking this general question. What does this book of Ephesians, what does this tell us as a people about what it means to become or to become more a people of grace? People who reflect God's grace more clearly in our lives. <clears throat> and this morning, as you see in verses 1 through 4, chapter 6, we're going to be talking about the relationship of parents and children. So before we read those verses, uh, let's come together to the Lord in prayer. In prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we again thank you for our time together here this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would take your word and by your spirit blow it up into living colors for us. May we see what you have here for us. May you drive it home to our hearts. Open our hearts to you that we might see the riches of what you're calling us to here. And Lord, we pray that along with that, <clears throat> that you would give us the hope of the gospel. It is the only thing that allows us to hear the commands you give us without being crushed by them, because they are brought to us in the gentle hand of our Savior. So we pray in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's my Kathleen Turner voice. Our college students don't know who that is. Okay. <clears throat> this passage that we're looking at this morning, chapter 6, um, is a part of the larger passage that started towards the end of chapter 5. The last couple weeks we've been looking at relationships of wives and husbands. And this is a part of a section of the letter that's called a household code. It's not the only place in the New Testament where we find this. You find other letters in the New Testament where the writer is, um, is addressing the very mundane concerns of life. Here's what life as a believer ought to look like in your own household. It's not unique to Christianity to have these household codes. You can find them in other, other examples of it in Greek literature. It was a part of um, the literature of the day. People expected and were used to hearing exhortations about what does it mean to, to live out these relationships of your life. What's interesting about this, if you were to look at these three relationships that are brought into view, starting in, verse, or in chapter 5, uh, wives and husbands, children and parents, and then we'll, next week we'll see slaves and masters. Those were obviously very common relationships. Uh, what we've said in the past couple of weeks about wives and husbands, without reviewing that territory, but Paul's command, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, that would not have sounded strange to anyone in the first century, of course. What would have sounded strange is the exhortations to the husbands to love their wives. Okay, they were used to hearing an exhortation, uh, to, for instance, to the wife, but not to the one who was in some sort of authority. It would have been very common in, in a passage like this for children to be exhorted to obey their parents. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find a culture in the world that didn't think that was important. But what is interesting is that here we see an exhortation to the parents about how they are to parent. And then next week we'll see it would not have been uncommon at all to hear an exhortation for slaves to obey their masters. But to have the gospel turn us right back around and address the masters, what does it mean to care for those in your care? That was different 
And for us here this morning, as we look at this common exhortation of children, obey your parents, the gospel brings a whole different spin on this because it brings obligations and a call to both sides of that relationship. So we're going to see this morning just a couple things in this passage that, that the gospel teaches children how to honor and obey their parents. And the gospel teaches parents how to bring up their children. So let's look at the two halves of this. First, um, we're going to look at children and their call. Another way of looking at this is living the gospel as a child. Okay, we see children are addressed in in, uh, verse 1. Now it's interesting, I mean just as a side note, the assumption here for Paul is as this letter would have been read to the churches, there would have been children present there listening to this, hearing this exhortation, right along with wives and husbands, right along with the others in the church. And much as we said with wives a couple weeks ago, the expectation here, the assumption is, Paul says, I'm going to address the children because they are believers too, because they are moral agents as well, because they are people with dignity as well, and the gospel has implications for them. Uh, children, it's, it's a, the Greek word here is, is a, a broad word for children. It can mean children of any age. I think the context in particular in verse 1 has to do with parents or with children who are still living um, in their home, growing up under the authority in that sense of their parents. Uh, but we're going to go on to see that in the next couple verses that the children addressed here, that has implications for all of us who are children of any age, for all of us who have living parents The gospel calls us to something in that relationship. Okay, so the first half of this, the first half of this command that Paul gives, he says, children, obey your parents. Children, specifically growing up in the care of your parents, that you're to obey them. Now, this is is somewhat culturally defined because every culture has a different sense of when does a child actually come to the age of maturity? When does a child actually stand on his, his or her own? Now, in our culture, um, you know, 18 is sort of the rough age of that's when we become legally responsible adults, whether that's true in our life or not. Um, and that might be a rough starting point for us as we think about this. But the, the culture that Paul's speaking into, uh, in Roman culture, the Roman, Roman fathers had authority over their children for as long as the father lived. There was never a day when you were not expected to obey the, um, the call of your parents. There is, I think, built into this passage right at the end of chapter 5, it, it, at least one peg we can hang our, our coats on as far as what does it mean to transition out of this. Um, it talks about in verse 21 of, of um, excuse me, verse 31 of chapter 5, when he's talking to husbands and wives, he goes back and quotes this verse from Genesis, and he says, therefore, a man will leave his parents and be united to his wife. He will step out of that relationship of a family into a new primary relationship. Okay, so there is some cultural diversity in the sense of in places and in times when a person is understood to no longer be under the primary influence of their parents. At the very least, here we have Paul assuming and affirming that when you get married, that you are starting a whole new family. Now, there are all kinds of questions. If you're single, what is all kinds of questions we could ask that we're not going to get into right now other than to say um, that there is an age, and we all know what that feels like, where you are under the care of your parents. And Paul says, when you are under the care of your parents, living in their home, you are to obey your parents. If we go back to, the um, again, the, the three relationships here, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, if you look at the husband and wife relationship, it uses the word submit. 
Here with children and parents, it uses a stronger word. It says obey. And the Greek word means obey. It means exactly what you think it means. <laughs> Just to break this down a little bit more, it means that children should do what their parents tell them to do. Um, as I've become a parent in the last few years, I'm starting to see how significant that really is. Um, when I was growing up, the, the answer that I most detested from my parents when they told me to do something was, because I said so. I was like, what kind of reason is that? Again, as I'm slowly gaining a little bit of wisdom as a parent myself, I see that that is full of wisdom. <laughs> and, so let me say this to you, if you are still a child in the care of your parents, um, and this will come as maybe hard medicine this morning a little bit. Uh, when a parent says to you, and hopefully rightly, when a, when a parent says, because I said so, what are they doing? At worst, and hopefully it's not this, what you hear maybe is arbitrary, there's no real reason. Um, but here's what, here's some, there's something right in that, and, here, and here's what I think it is. Your parent is calling you to a relationship. I am your, I am your parent. God has given me care over your soul. And a part of your discipline and a part of your growing up is to accept authority as it's given to you because that's the authority that I have as a parent. So to, to say to a child, because I said so, actually does carry some weight. We'll see a little bit more of that in just a second. Uh, there is a second part of the command that's given to children here. Look in verse 2. Back to verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that may, you may live long in the land. Okay, he brings up a second term, not just to obey, but he brings it into the larger concept of honoring your parents. And he goes right back to the fifth commandment uh, to talk to us about that. We find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and both of those talk about honoring your mother and your father. And this part of the command is a lifelong command. If you have parents who are still alive, then your call to them is to honor them. If you were to go back into the uh, Old Testament context, Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, and look at this word, the Hebrew word for honor, it's kaved, it means um, weight, glory. To give weight to something, importance to something, reverence to something. Okay, now for people that are in my generation and younger, I'll just speak for us, um, this, is, this is often not a very easy concept uh, because we're more likely to be cynical and edgy about authority and somewhat disdainful of it than to really have a sense of some things in this world have real weight and importance that transcends us. Maybe you're more likely to see the inconsistencies, the hypocrisies, the weaknesses in your own parents than to have this sense of they are people that God has placed in my life and I am to honor them. They have weight in my life. Again, this is a lifelong calling and a duty. In this sense, you don't ever get past your parents. Okay, you never leave honoring your parents behind. And again, that's a challenge for those of us that um, tend to be very individualistic in our thinking, um, which is most of us most of the time. Um, it's hard for us sometimes to remember that we are called to something in a relationship that's very much outside of ourselves that lasts our whole life long. That you've been brought into a relationship with your parents and that goes the distance. 
some of us are wrestling with this, this very issue because, again, because we're young and we're still in the household of our parents. Um, some of us are college students, for example. You guys are in a tough spot because you're in this, the middle of this great shift, this great transition from living under your parents' roof to being fully um, on your own. And some of you already know what that feels like. You're paying for your college education. You're supporting yourself. Some of you all feel the weight of, on the one hand, I'm sort of on my own, but mom and dad are still writing the checks. I'm, I'm not completely there yet. And you're making this transition of what does it mean to go from honoring my parents and obeying them in one way to now honoring them as I am becoming an adult. Some of us are wrestling with this issue when we, as we have parents who are beginning to age, and you're thinking, what does it mean to be responsible and honor them? And some of us in this congregation are struggling with this because they're thinking, I don't feel honored by my own children. So there might be a lot of ways where this call um, is hitting us this morning. Let me give us just a couple practical suggestions, thoughts on what does it mean for us to actually honor our parents. Number one. Be careful how you speak about your parents, how you speak about your parents both to yourself and to others. You know what those conversations are like uh, with friends. You're in a conversation and people are complaining about their parents. Um, you know what it feels like to complain and dishonor your parents versus to actually share your burdens with somebody in a way that helps. Okay, there is a time and a place to share your struggles with others, but you know the dif difference between that and simply venting. And this is true of us at any age. Think about the way you speak about your parents to each other, to yourself. Second thing, be careful to speak to your parents. Okay, this is maybe, if, if anything in particular, for our high school students. High school students, talk to your parents. Talk to your parents. Let them in on what's going on in your life. This is one of the most common comments I get from parents who have high school students. I have no idea what my high school student is thinking because they never talk. Okay? Your parents are not just trying to meddle in your life. Speak to them. Part of honoring your parents is to be careful to speak to your parents. Third thing, continue to include your parents in your life throughout your life. Again, College, this is, college students, this is a, a hard time for you as you're learning how to do that in a very different context. Uh, for all of us, though, continue to include your parents in your life. And you know what it's like as you go into next stages and life becomes busy and you're absorbed with many things. What does it mean to still honor your parents and honor the bond and relationship that you have with them? Continue to include them in your life. Fourth thing, forgive your parents. They all screwed up in varying degrees in raising you up. You know that, and you feel it, and you complain about it. And I certainly have to forgive your parents. As an added motivation here, you need to know that one day, your children are going to profoundly be challenged to forgive you. As one fellow pastor said to me at one point, as he tells this to everybody, he said, one day your children are going to be in counseling because of the way you parented them. <laughs> and that's only half a joke, you know? <laughs> Forgive your parents. Number five, thank your parents. Your parents have given themselves for you. They have cared for you, and they continue in many cases to do that. 
now. Those of us that have children, maybe like me, you found that you only began to understand this when you had kids yourself. Only then did you begin to understand this is what it cost my parents to care for me, to love me, to show me that kind of care. Thank you. Part of honoring your parents is thanking your parents. Number six, and last suggestion for this morning, take care of your parents when they need taken care of. Okay, this is part of what honoring your parents throughout their life means. Let me mention a couple other verses. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Timothy, or Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he's talking about the situation in the church with uh, widows. And he makes a distinction between widows and real widows. Okay, widows are people who have lost their husbands. Real widows, in this sense, are women who have not only lost their husbands but have no children but have no family at all to take care of them. 1 Timothy 5.3, he says, Honor widows who are truly widows. And when he uses the word honor there in context, he's talking about showing actual physical support for them. Take care of their needs. Don't let them go needy. 1 Timothy 5.8, a few verses later, he says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What's he saying? Part of your responsibility as a believer is to care for your family. And that's going to mean caring for your parents as well. Now, there's an infinite variety of ways that might work out in your family. Okay? It doesn't say, does that mean uh, that my parents go into nursing care? Does it mean they come to live in my house? Does it, all those very complicated decisions that have, to be make, that have to be made, it doesn't give you one solution to that. But let me just suggest this. It feels like, in our culture, that our cultural expectation is that older people, as their health begins to fail, um, are the responsibility of continuing care facilities that don't really interfere with our lives. It feels that way. It's not true in every case. But in, um, in our culture, I'm not sure that our aging parents are honored the way they should. So here's one thing to think about. At some point, would it be possible that following the Lord means that your parents, as their health fails, should live in your home? The Bible doesn't tell us you have to do that. But the implication of this is that's certainly one of the things we have to think about. What does it mean to honor my parents and care for them as they age. Every situation is different. That might not be the best way to care for your parents, but it's going to mean that I think we're going to have to think about that. Don't turn away from this lifelong calling that we all have to honor our parents. Now, if you notice in these verses, these, these commands of, of obey and honor, it comes with a promise. It's an interesting one that sort of stops us in our tracks. Second half of verse 2, this is the first command with a promise. And this is, again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. How do we take that promise? If I, if I honor my parents, then my life is going to flourish. I'm going to live to a ripe old age. I'm not going to have any struggles in life. Well, you know, if you, if you read both the Old Testament and the New, you see that God's people struggle in many ways. There's no guarantee in that sense that each and every one of us, when you read this, each and every one of us, if we just do our best to honor our parents, we're going to live long and prosper. What does it say, though? He's talking about the way God has set up our world to work. And he says, you know, in general, this is, this is what brings life for us. 
Step into this command of honoring your parents. Care for them. In a very general sense, this brings blessing into our lives. As one commentator said, um, people who drive on the right side of the road tend, tend to do better when they're out on the streets. Now, we have British couples in our... In America, people who drive on the right side of the street tend to do better. There's something to be said for, what is this saying? Going along the grain of God's purposes instead of against it. Care for your parents. Honor them. Now, some of that means involve, involves not just in, in embracing God's purposes in this. It's not, simply, it's not simply gritting your teeth and enduring it. I can't wait to get out of my parents' house. I can't wait until I no longer have to care for them, but to fully step into honoring your parents. Now, Paul doesn't leave us simply there with this command. He gives us what I think is a real gospel motivation. He says, in, again, in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Okay, what does that mean? Um, it's equivalent to what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 22, and then chapter 6, verse 5, when he says things like this, as to the Lord, as to Christ. Honor your parents in the Lord means honor your parents as a way of honoring and following the Lord. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 20, a, a parallel verse to this, a parallel passage to this, Paul says there, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. For us as children of any age, Honoring our parents, for us as children of an age, when we're young, obeying our parents is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, there's no artificial separation between what I believe theologically and the way I'm actually supposed to live that out in my life. There's no dichotomy between our spiritual duties. We're being spiritual when we come to church, when we pray, when we take communion. And then all that earthly mundane stuff, oh, that's just the stuff of living life in our families. This passage reminds us that the gospel comes right into the heart of our living our lives and our families and says that uh, there is a gospel motivation in honoring our parents. Now, much as we said with wives and submission, we talked about with wives that as you submit, you are actually looking over your husband's shoulder to Christ himself, your true husband. And I think that's the, maybe a helpful image here for what Paul has in mind when he talks about obeying and honoring your parents as to the Lord. What's he saying? You're looking actually past your parents, over their shoulder, to your heavenly Father. This is part and parcel for what it means for you to be an obedient believer. Part of that is honoring your parents. In doing that, you are honoring your heavenly Father. Two things here. Um, for those of you that are still living under uh, your parents' roof or still young, obeying your parents is the first lesson you're going to get in life in obeying God and living under authority. The great mistake I think I probably felt in my bones was when I go off to college, when I reach whatever time of life, I'm just not going to have this authority over me. I'll be free. What I found was that I traded one authority for many more. <laughs> this is the first lesson in life for you of the fact that we are all people who live under authority. You start with your parents' authority. Soon you will see you live under the authority of all kinds of things. Always God. Also your government. Your future family. The gospel brought to you by your friends who call you when you are badly erring and going in the wrong direction. We are all people under authority. Second thing, uh, 
just a reminder for those of us, especially those of us who are in the position of obeying our parents. But it applies too for us as we honor our parents. The gospel brings a whole different set of resources to the table for us as we obey and as we honor. We're now free to obey. We're now free to honor our to honor our parents because of what Jesus has brought into our life. Because he's given us a new life. Because we now have a heavenly father. Because we've now been brought from death into life. Because we are now secure as the children of God. That means you can now be free to honor and obey regardless of how well or how poorly your parents parent you. You have a heavenly father who parents you perfectly. Who is deeply committed to your welfare. You follow a Savior who died on your behalf to rescue you and bring you into a new family. And that should help us with the fear that we have in obeying and honoring. We have a Father, a true Father, who is taking care of us. Okay, the second thing, we talk about living the gospel as a child. The passage also talks about living the gospel as a parent. Okay, and we need to address who's being, who is being addressed here. Okay, in the passage as a whole, verses 1 through 4, both parents are in view. Okay, the children are told, obey your parents, your mother and your father. Honor, children, honor your parents. Okay, your parents are given that calling, and as parents, you have the calling of being parents equally, husbands and wives together. It is interesting, though, in verse 4, that it singles out the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two things about that, just on a cultural note. uh, Roman fathers had essentially absolute authority over their children. They could demand anything of their children they wanted to. They could punish in any way they thought appropriate, even to the extent of having, of, um, of capital punishment of their own kids. Roman fathers were given almost complete sway over their own children. So in this culture, it's an important note that Paul steps in and says, fathers, he addresses that relationship, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline, instruction of the Lord. Now, second thing, I think it does uh, bring into view the fact that there is, just as um, husbands are called to be the head of their wives, they have a certain responsibility in their family as well. It is important that he says fathers. However, we do have to remember the larger context. Obey your parents, honor your parents, mothers and fathers both. You know, are mothers free to provoke their children to anger? Of course not. Uh, Are mothers absolved from raising their children in discipline and instruction? Of course not. There is, he does give this, he does give this emphasis on fathers, but in view of this passage, he's talking to parents, to both of us. So what does it say to us as mothers and fathers for our children? Uh, The command, the first part's a negative part. He says, don't provoke your children to anger. Puts a limit on the exercise of power and authority that you have over your children. This doesn't mean, though most of us as children wish it did, it doesn't mean don't do anything that's going to make your children mad at you. It does mean don't do anything as a parent that contradicts your God-giving calling as parents to speak the gospel and grace into your child's life, to raise them in, as the King James Version translates this, the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, past couple sermons, I've referenced a book by Brian Chappell called Each for the Other, and he, he lists uh, three examples of what it means to provoke, just sample ways. What does it mean to provoke your children to anger? Here's the first one. 
Authority that requires submission but submits to no one will provoke your children to anger. Okay, the point of this passage, we are all people under authority. Parents, are you using your authority in your home well? Are you modeling what it means to be a person living under authority? Let me ask you a couple practical questions. Um, around your dinner table, how do you speak about your boss? How do you speak about our government officials? Okay, those are areas where we are under authority. Are you showing your children a right picture of obedience and honor in your honoring of Christ himself and your obedience to him? Okay, second thing. Uh, second way that you can provoke your children to anger. Love that requires sacrifice but seeks self. As a parent, love that uh, requires sacrifice for your children but only for your own good. Another way of asking that is, are you replacing your children's expectation that life is all about them with the expectation that no, life is really all about me as a parent? Love that requires sacrifice but seeks self. Third thing, respect demanded at the expense of individual dignity. Because your authority over your children, is it shaming your children? Because we can't forget that our children also are bearers of God's image. And created with incredible dignity, incredible weight. They bear God's image, and they are on loan to us as parents. They belong to God. Another way you might demand respect at the expense of individual dignity is not recognizing that every child is unique. What worked with number one is maybe not going to work with number two or number three. That our children are different and unique. The fact that we all bear God's image, and we do that in many different with many different unique flavors, are you, on, are you caring for your children appropriately by recognizing that they are all unique and that you do not shame and do not work against their individual dignity? Okay, here's what he says don't do, right? Don't parent this way. What does he say to do? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, this really answers the question that underlies all this. What is our parenting for? What are we trying to do? What are we up to in our parenting? Um, in your translation here in the ESV where it says, bring them up, he's using the same term that he used back in chapter 5, verse 29, when he was talking about a person nourish. It's the word nourish. Nur a person nourishes his own body. What, is, what was Paul's argument there? He says, we, 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 don't, we don't abuse ourselves. We nourish ourselves. We take care of ourselves. And he says, that's the same way Christ nourishes the church. And he says, husbands, that's the way you are to nourish your wives, to care for them. Same word here, that we would nourish our children and that we nourish them by disciplining and instructing them in the Lord. Okay, these two terms, discipline and instruction, uh, together they, they have to do with training, shaping, instruction, and also carries some connotation of warning and admonition where that's appropriate. That you're responsible for the training of your children. Okay, I think this calling, it, it challenges two, um, two com at least two common attitudes. Um, and this is one I hear some. The cynicism of parents. I mean, as a parent of young children, I've heard comments like this. Oh, just wait till they're teenagers. Okay, now... That's meant in, in joking fun. Let, let me ask us this. What do our teenagers hear when they say that? 
and what's, what's the full weight behind that comment? Are our children something simply to be endured and survived, or are they, are they people that are meant to be nourished? challenges our cynicism. It also challenges our naive optimism that somehow things are just going to turn out okay. We're parents. We're going to close our eyes and hope for the best. Can't wait till 18. Hopefully the Lord will take care of them. Whether Whether you're cynical about your parenting or naively optimistic, this challenges both of those things. We are called to instruct and care for our children. It calls us to be deeply involved in the lives of our children. Um, Let me ask us this. This is certainly a question for me, too. What is your life of faith showing your kids about what it means to follow Jesus? What are you showing them in your parenting? When your children look at your life, and they are, what are they deducing is the most important thing in life? What is central to life? What's central to being authentically and truly human? What are they learning from you? What's your real goal for your children? And that really lines up with, what's your real goal for yourself? Because that's what you're teaching them. You have something at the center of your life, and you are passing that on to your children. You are your children's personal trainer. You are teaching them in everything you do, in everything you say, and everything you don't say, and everything you don't do. You're teaching them what's important whenever and however you spend your money, you spend your time, you lose your patience, you pray, you ask for forgiveness, use harsh words, take a breath in, take a breath out. Your kids are watching all of those things. Um, this is driven home for me. As we have young children, maybe it becomes more subtle as you have older children or it plays out in different ways. But my children's vocabulary and their mannerisms are almost entirely shaped by us, their parents, still at this point. I walk in and I see our daughter, Caroline, picking up her mother's cell phone. Elizabeth's sister's name is Ellen. So when I see Caroline pick up that phone, it kind of cock her head and say, hey, Ellie, how's it going? <laughs> where, did she learn, where did she learn that? She's been, we didn't ever have to say, now, Caroline, when you're talking to your aunt, here's how you turn on the phone and here's how you answer. She's been watching us. I'm not going to give any examples about the things that, that I say that she repeats. I'll just use my wife. <laughs> You are inviting your children to follow you on the path of life, and what is that path? Now, there is no guarantee that ultimately your children are going to follow you. There, uh, there is no guarantee that as you seek to follow the Lord, that down the road, 100%, you know that your children are going to walk that same path. There's no absolute guarantee of that. But you are helping set the DNA for what it means to your children to follow Jesus to begin with. You are creating a strong impression. You are forming the starting point for them. I remember when I was in freshman psychology in college, it's been a while, maybe they've changed the illustrations or the theory, but at the time, what our professor said, she said, you know, you're, you, parents leave an indelible mark on you. And if you've ever seen those um, plaster casts where somebody sticks their hand in there and it leaves the hand imprint, uh, my professor said, it's as if your parent um, jumped up against a plaster wall and just buried themselves in it. That's the impression that your parents leave on you as a child. Some of us don't believe that until you get a little bit older. Um, Some of us us know this because when you got married, you started to find out something interesting. Um, When you came into your marriage, maybe you didn't really think that your 
family had really left much of a mark or an imprint on you at all. I mean, all you could think about is how very different you are than your family. Well, then you get married and you find out, you, you find you're married to someone who's even way more different than your family than you are. Um, <laughs> You, 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 didn't, you didn't know how deeply your parents impacted you until you saw somebody going about life in a completely different way and you stopped and scratched your head and thought, what in the world is going on there? And you start to realize that your family, your parents, have left an indelible mark on you. They are your starting point for how you um, make sense of the world around you. And you see it when you walk into your marriage. It's still happening to me in new ways. When I was younger, I didn't think I was much like my father at all. Older I get... Um, I sometimes just sort of look around in bewilderment. I'll say something and I'll think, that was my father speaking. Where did he come from? Uh, how did he get in there? And maybe some of you know that experience of like, that was just like my mother. That was just like my father. It's become hardwired into us. Uh, now, I spent seven years in campus ministry, and when you work with college students, it doesn't take long to see that one of the most significant things that college students wrestle with is trying to make sense of their relationship with their parents and the impact their parents have had on them for good or for ill. I've had thousands of these conversations. Ask Ben, our RUF campus minister. He's been here at William & Mary for a semester and a half. I guarantee you he's spent hours talking to students on campus um, about the ways, whether they verbalize it or not, but about the ways that their parents have left their mark on them for good or for bad. And the truth is, as we as Christian parents, if we followed the commands in this passage, uh, bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, then Ben's calling on campus as a pastor would be radically changed, okay? Because he wouldn't be spending a good part of his time with Christian students, helping them work through all the things that their parents poured into their lives that pointed them away from Jesus rather than towards Jesus. He'd still have plenty to do, but we wouldn't have to do as much of that rewiring, Parents, we are trained, we're profoundly formed by our own parents, and we're doing the same thing for our kids. How are we forming them? Um, familiar with the, with the song, Cats in the Cradle. Now, side note, I looked this up. Though half the world thinks that was written by Cat Stevens, it wasn't. It was written by Harry Chapin. Um, the internet said that, for some reason, it's this huge mystery that most of the world still thinks it was written by Cat Stevens, but... Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. Listen to these couple verses. song starts this way. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And he goes through the song, and there are all these brushes that this father has with his son where he misses opportunities. And then you hear the father speaking at the end of the song. I've long since retired and my son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. And he'd say, he said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. But you see, my job's a hassle and kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. We are training our children Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. This is verse 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. And these words I commend you to, command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's he saying? These commands of the Lord, this life in the Lord, you are to speak about this and pass this on to your children. If you were here last summer, we did a series on the book of Judges and talked about all the ways God's people in the book of Judges go so wrong. And it all begins in the first couple chapters of Judges when Joshua, who's led his people into the promised land, has been faithful to God. Joshua and his whole generation die. Verse 10 of Judges 2 says this, All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. As parents, we are passing along this heritage of following the Lord. Your job as a parent is to raise the next generation of those who are going to honor and follow our God. And your children are learning what it means to follow Jesus by watching you. Now, where does that leave us? When I was in high school, turning 16, and wanted to get a driver's license, um, it involved going through all this classroom work, watching frightening videos of people crashing their cars, <laughs> sitting in the car with an instructor for a week, learning how to drive. As I was leaving high school, when I turned 18, uh, I learned how to scuba dive. And similarly, went through a couple, several weeks of classes of learning how to handle a tank, how to do the breathing, of having to take a practice dive with an instructor. Extensive training. Fast forward, uh, when I was 32, and we're in the hospital, and Elizabeth gives birth to Caroline. Day goes by, everybody's doing fine, mother and daughter. And then we're going to get discharged from the hospital. And the only thing they want to know is if we own an infant car seat. I've never changed a diaper. And these people are going to let me go out into the world with this brand new child. And all they want to know is if I have a car seat. So many things of the most important things in our life involve extensive training. And some of us maybe have been or will be terrified when we actually step into this role of being parents, something that we know we're not at all adequate to. Maybe you're overwhelmed. You didn't know this was what you were signing up for. I'm not wise enough. I'm not godly enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not patient enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't like staying up in the middle of the night. Where does this leave us? Despair, frustration, or maybe something better? If you look back in the first three and a half chapters of Ephesians, where Paul lays out his whole foundation for exhortations like this, he spends three and a half chapters talking about Christ who has brought us back home. Talking to us as believers as people who were without a family that had been brought into a new family. People who had no fathers who were given a heavenly father. Talking about us being brought into a relationship where we are free now to fail, to repent, to cry out for help. Free because we've been brought into a whole new family. Ephesians 1-2 says this. As Paul greets these people, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you going to have the ability to parent your children? How are you going to have the courage to do that when you fail? Only if you know the grace and peace that come to us in Jesus. You know what it's like to so desperately want a set of directions? 
A lot of good advice about how to be a parent. But it's interesting that what Paul gives us and what Scripture gives us, much more than a program or a plan, is a person, the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus who went to the cross to forgive you your sin, your bad parenting, your failure, all of you. And you're free now to step into parenting because the gospel brings real hope and real healing into our lives and therefore into our parenting as well. You want to be a good parent. Follow Jesus and let your parents and let your children watch. And if you do that, they're going to learn what it means to respond rightly to conviction by watching you respond to conviction in your own life. They're going to learn to repent, to turn away from their sin by watching you honestly look at and turn away from the sin in your own life. They're going to learn to ask for forgiveness from God and other people by watching you ask forgiveness from them when you screw up. They're going to learn what it means to rely on God for strength in this life as they watch you call out to God for strength in the middle of your own life, in the middle of the hardships of your own life. They're going to learn to pray as they watch you pray real prayers, not a formal head nod to God, but real, earnest, expectant prayers. They're going to learn to love God's Word as they see you honor and love God's Word in, their own life, in your own life. And they're going to see the love of God, that the love of God for us in Jesus is real because they're going to see that it's the only thing that brings real and lasting joy and change and forgiveness and freedom in your own life. This is what you have to offer your children, this Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you, our Father. May that be the starting point for us. We thank you that you, through the work of your Son, Jesus, have brought us into a whole new relationship with you. May we find the full freedom of that. Drive it home to us. Remind us of it. May it loom large in our eyes. And for us as children throughout our lives, show us what it means. Give us the strength to honor our parents. For those of us who are still living with our parents as young children, give us the strength to obey because it is you ultimately that we are obeying. And as parents, guide us and help us not to provoke our children to anger, but instead to raise them up in discipline, good discipline, good formation, helpful walking alongside of them as we point them to you. And Lord Jesus, we are lost if you don't meet us in this because we are not adequate to the task. But we thank you that we have a Savior that frees us from our failures and a Spirit who guides us and a Father who loves us that we might be bold to trust you as we step into parenting our own children. Lord, we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.